Welcome to the What's Your Revolution show, a show for men and the people who love them, where we discuss how men can find and embrace the healthiest versions of themselves. I am your host, Dr. Charles Corpru. What's good, everybody? Hope you had a good week. You're doing your thing. You're on your revolutions, you know, making moves in your life, making moves in the world. That's what revolution is about, and that's what we talk about each week, how you can find and embrace the best version of yourself. You know, we are fortunate here at the What's Your Revolution show to have some superstar guests. Uh, We've had Professor Cheryl Cashin, the author of Loving. We've had acclaimed author C. Erskine Brown and his his acclaimed book, A Cry Among Men. But ever so often we are graced with the presence of a superstar, uh, a person who can really answer the question that we ask here, what's revolution, and really proclaim that I have been out in the world and I am putting it down and this is my revolution. We are fortunate today to have author Donnell Moore and his book that is on fire no ashes in the fire. Dear brother Donnell Moore, how you doing? I'm good. How are you today? I am doing well, and I am honored and blessed to have you grace us with your talents, with everything that you're doing in the world, dear brother. Thank you for taking time to talk to us and talk to me for the next couple of minutes, brother. I'm, thank- I'm really grateful to be part of the show today. Really honored. Thank you. Thank you. As we ask all of our guests, dear brother, What's your revolution? Yeah, for me, the most radical revolution one can partake in before the attempt to sort of change the world is to change their self. And Mm. over the last several years, I've been thinking deeply about what internal revolution means, what it means to abolish the things within ourselves um, that contribute to injustices and hurts in other people's lives. One of my favorite mantras is, So many of us are skilled in naming um, the feet that are on our necks, um, but not many of us are able to name the necks that our feet are on Mm. and even more able to do the work to take that off. So I'm really trying to change myself um, so that I can go out in the world and do what I can to make changes there. Brother, that is beautiful, and that is exactly, I mean, that that is exactly aligned in what we do here at this show and what I talk about all the time, that personal revolution, global revolution does not exist without personal revolution. And it's interesting that you say that, that the pain that we may be causing someone else because of the internal work that we have not done, it is crucial. It is crucial for us as men. It's crucial for us as people to look inward. And I love that. I, I love that. And people ask me all the time what my own personal work is and you know we could spend a whole hour talking about that dear brother but uh, you know last year i really had the opportunity to sit with myself sit with myself in failure and to really look at my own internal workings and try to be better so i appreciate your comments and hopefully i've been able to take my feet off some people's necks <laughs> me too i mean that's the work right that is that is definitely the work dear brother um as we ask everybody again, you know, even though you're an author, I know you're reading something. What's yeah. on your nightstand? Oh, so I have three books. Um, Sing, Unburied Sing by Jasmine Ward um, is a new book that's not out yet, but it should be out soon by J.M. Holmes called How Are You Going to Save Yourself? Mm. 
and another book of in both the, the last all of these are fiction actually um, by Jamil Brinkley. This book is out now called A Lucky Man. Um, and I've been turning to fiction lately. Those are the three books that I, that I have in my bag and on my shelf. Right, right. Why fiction at this point in time in your life? Well, uh, you know, I'm a writer, so I'm reading lots of things. Um, I got a lot of books in my bag and <laughs> things that I'm reading all at once. Uh, but I've been reading fiction, if only because it allows us access into imaginative worlds, allows us to speculate a bit about what could be. Um, and also offers a window into our lived experiences. So the last two books that I talk about are mostly involved with characters who are boys and um, young adults and teens, um, and really does do a really good job at looking at the interior lives of these young boy characters and, and the, the mistakes they make, the errors they make, um, the ways that they've shaped to sort of be the type of boys and men that they are, damaging relationships with women, damaging sometimes relationships with self, the way that they love each other and have intimacy despite the way that black men and boys are often depicted as having so. Um, so I've, I've, been, I've been just wanting to sort of escape a bit mm. um, in fiction only to find that it contains so much of our lived reality. Right, right. No, no, I, I agree with that. And the, the question that I have from hearing that is that why are these works so important for us? Why, why do we need to go out and continually read things like that? To, is it... So we can see ourselves, so, so that we yeah. can give give ourselves yeah. an opportunity to, you know, hold ourselves without the contempt of the world. Yeah, you know, I believe fiction, particularly, and I'm I'm really going to be very specific here, but black literature, works that are written by black people, um, fiction is always been used as a tool for world remaking. It could it shaped the way we think about politics. Um, it, teach, it gives us example, you know, examples of how how we might find love and love in under conditions of lovelessness, which tend to exist in the real world, right? Um, and I also think it's an easier way, sometimes beyond the hard, long language that sort of that the choir typically employs to talk about problems. Fiction takes us beyond that. It shows us ourselves. It's a mirror, really. Yes. Um, and I, I just want us to get more books in our hands and, and time to read those books. Right, right. Uh, I, I think about, you know, as we hear on the news, um, LeBron opening his school. And I know yeah. we're a, a little off script, but the opportunity for the kids that he's going to be, that his school is going to be educating to read books like this for the young men in Akron and the young men across the country who have these opportunities um, because charter schools are have been allowed or taking the way in some respect to, you know, create a pedagogy and a curriculum that will allow various voices to be heard and to be read. So I think about that opportunity, particularly for our young men, to read things that they can see that, you know, illuminates, you know, a, a different path, a different narrative than we're seeing. Yeah. You know. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, as I, I've read your you know, parts of your book and uh, will enjoy reading more of it as, as I go on, I began to see a little bit of myself in your writing, in your story. And, you know, even though growing up in Virginia Beach, Virginia, different, it may seem a little different than Camden. I still, you know, as you depicted growing up, there was a, a life there. You know, uh, a young boy. What was it like growing up in in Canada? Because we're about the same age. I'm 47. You're 42. Yeah. What was it like growing growing up in Camden? 
You know, one of the more the, one of the more difficult things to do was to write about my city and to be honest. Um, and that is to say, I didn't want to hide the fact that, like most post-industrial, urban, predominantly black spaces, that we had our problems. We had our problems. You know, I grew up in Camden. The crack epidemic was raging. Um, and, you know, we had a lot of residue from white flight, you know, abandoned homes and properties. Um, the sort of median class, the median income was very low. The city was called the most violent and most economically devastated in the United States at the time. And it wasn't the easiest space to be. Um, but here's the thing that I always say is that what makes my home remarkable and why I'm so always at the ready to talk about my home and my people is that despite all of that was happening around us, we had we were rich in love. Right, in community. exactly, exactly. You, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, so I, I, I do. So, we were so rich that I didn't know I was poor. You know what I'm saying? Like, right. Like because we come from, I come from the type of family that would never let anyone go without. No one ever went without eating. No one ever went without having a place to lay their head, even if our house was packed. And that is a type of um, radical black love that can assuage you, um, even when hell's breaking loose on the outside of your home um, or inside of it, right? And and that's really my, you know, I lift up Camden because of the people, right? In it that make Camden what it is. No doubt, no doubt, and and that's what it. Because I began as I was reading the book, I began to think about my own childhood, and the joy um, of that. But knowing that we struggled, uh, knowing that my my family and my mother, you know, we we had to make ends meet. My, both my mother and father were educators. But I never really understood that because I could go out in my front yard and play with my friends. I could go up, you know, and that veil of life was there. There was, as you talk about smiling, you know, that the ability to smile and somehow that, that smile as we've grown older uh, seems to be taken away at times. But I found, you know, some correlation, some, some reverence in what you were saying because as a child you may not, as long as there's love in your life, Right. And, and feel when you walk into the home. And that's what I felt like. That's what I felt like from you. You were able to walk into spaces, even though, the, you know, your grandmother's home and 11 people in the household. There was a lot of love, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, and, yeah. And so that's how I found this, you know, this this semblance of uh, the sameness in what you were talking about. But I also found this this interesting narrative that you talk about with your father, particularly early in your life. What was that relationship like? Um, I was really intrigued by the story of you in the shower with him Mm -hmm. and how riveting that was for you. And you said that that you've never felt a closeness with another man that you felt with your father. What was that like? I mean, that feeling like for you coming up? Yeah, I um, I I love my father. My father passed. I'm sorry to hear that, brother. You know, and. he had me at 15, so it's important to know that he was a boy when I was born. He was a kid, and um, that's critical. That understanding that context is critical to how I began understanding who he became. Um, while he was barely loving with me, I was his first child, um, who he loved. You know, I write about the bathroom scene where he's teaching me how to wash because I wanted to people to have access to to a 
a depiction within black literature where you see a black man and a boy naked in a bathtub. There is no sexual violence. There is no um, predatory action, um, and particularly given the ways that black men and boys are thought to be hypersexualized, right. that were never allowed to be human, which is to say be, to have to experience intimacy, which is to say to cry, to hug, to be in the same space as naked without people thinking it's something beyond what it is. Right. And I wanted to offer that up, you know. Um, at the same time, he, he was also really violent with my mother, who um, created a, a sort of dichotomous view of who he was in, in many ways. He the same hand that he used to do beautiful things with me to teach me how to watch. He used to do violent. He used them to do violent things with her. That created a distance with us. Right. But as I wrote, I thought, you know, that moment symbolized something that I don't think I've experienced. Um, as you get older, I, I watch pictures of myself. I stopped smiling. I got harder. Um, like the soft, open young person that was hadn't wasn't anymore. And that's because black people and scholars write about this all the time aren't allowed to be kids. <laughs> Young black, we're not allowed to be kids. You know, you're eight years old. Right. I ask you low man, you low man. man. You know what I mean? Exactly. So you get the smiles, the, you know, the the the, 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 the desire to embrace someone who is another boy or to cry around another guy. All that stuff sort of gets hardened away or, or beat out of you or you're told by society that you're not allowed. Um and that's what I meant. As I got older, I realized the intimacy that was expressed in the moment like that, I got further and further away from because I was socialized to believe that's what real men do. Right, right. Now I'm coming back around full circle to understand that that was never a, a route to freedom at all, you know? Right. You're listening to the What's Your Revolution show with Dr. Charles Corpru, sitting here with acclaimed author. Darnell Moore and his book, No Ashes in the Fire, which is as we discuss a little bit about his relationship with his father. Um, it's interesting, Darnell, because, again, the similarities between our fathers and that, that bath, that bathing time is a rite of passage. And I remember that same thing as a young boy and, and my father doing the same thing with me and the struggles at the beginning of their relationship with my mother. Uh, my father is 89 now. And, you know, as you say, coming back around to find that closeness. Uh, and really opening myself up to find that closeness with other men that, you know, that we have tend to sexualize or hypersexualize or, or nefariously say that that is homosexual or, or gay. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's really, really interesting as my father has gotten older and as I've gotten older, the, the, the tremendous love that we had. But like you, like you, I also shied away from him as an adolescent, you know, and as an, as an early adult male. Because of that bravado, like you, you can't teach me anything anymore, which was a lie. Um, but true, and I love that depiction, and I love that part that you said that that closeness that you felt in the beginning, right? You know, it, you have to find that again, and yeah. that is important for us as men as we grow, finding that that closeness, hopefully with our fathers or, or close men in our lives. That's why I think this book is so pivotal and revolutionary. So my question for you is, why write this book and why write it now? Yeah, I, I um, wanted to write a book that made sense to younger black, um, to, to black youth, really. And, and not just black youth, but to, to anyone who experiences themselves as living sometimes on the edges of the edges of the margins. Um, 
I really had a couple things I wanted to do, and that is to get people to think in a more humanistic and empathic way about the lived experiences of black young people who come up in the world and 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 come into themselves as lesbian, gay, and bisexual, and transgender, um, queer, and trans young people. I really do care deeply about LGBT young people, and um, because I was one of those young people who didn't identify as gay when I was young, I didn't know that was a thing, and I, gay is probably not even close to how um, I would have identified myself as, and I just didn't see a lot of depictions of black one LGBT life, also the type of the type of life of Black people I knew that was Black people who were living in urban centers that was like deindustrialized, um, Black folk who were economically disenfranchised. I mean, you saw the caricatures of our lives, right, right, right. but not the interior aspects of who we were. Um, that gets beyond just a spectacle of like abandoned properties and drugs in the street. I'm talking about what are, you know, the, the stuff that happens inside our homes, mm-hmm. the stuff that happens inside of our hearts. Um, and a book of, you know, I, I really was writing for, for the 16-year-old version of me who needed a book um, that affirmed who he yes. would understand yes. himself to be. I needed right. a mirror, and I didn't have those when I was growing up. I, I, I write about in the book, I went through 12 years of um, schooling, K-12, to without ever reading a book. Um, that had someone, a character in it that, that was similar to my own, and I, I wanted to write what I needed. Um, and that's why I wrote it now. And I wanted to also write a book that for, that got rid of the, the language that often keeps, you know, it's possible I can talk about intersectionality. There you go. I was waiting for it. I was waiting for it. It, it has to come you know out. What I'm yes, yes, it has to come um, out. So I was like, the way that we can do that is through stories. <laughs> right, it, it, exactly. And I think that. What this does, since you brought up this term, uh, intersectionality, and something that I talk about a lot in my work, is that we we get lost sometimes just at black and male. We, we stop there, right? Yep. And we don't go any further, right, to understand the lived experiences as you dig down between sex and religion and socioeconomic yep. status and all the things that make, up, make us this amalgamation of individuals that walk out into the world every day. And... You're right. There, there is nothing that speaks to past black and male, when it, particularly when it comes to sexual or, or, or as I say, relationship orientation. And that's why I think for me, this book is so riveting because it, like you said, there's nothing else out there. Yeah. And that is why. So in saying that, knowing that we stop at black and male sometimes with the intersectionality, what does this book do for the importance of black masculinity as a whole? Yeah, and I should be, let me be clear, to um, some, I, I always like to give homage to the people that shaped me, and so many of the writers whose work have informed mine. Um, Cassie Lehman is a contemporary writer whose work, his has a new memoir coming out called Heavy. Um, Mark Anthony Neal has been doing amazing yes. work over the course of several decades on black manhood and masculinities. Um, you know, and I can go on, I mean, no, I, I know, I, I know Dr. Neal's work extensively. But then there's a whole black feminist genealogy, a whole lineage of black women who have been writing, um, Audre Lorde and June Jordan yes. and Barbara Smith, folk who, Charles Clark, um, who I got to know, Kimberly Crenshaw, who coined intersectionality, mm, exactly. right? Who are feminists who are also, who, they're, they're black and they, they name themselves as black feminists, like Brittany Cooper. Um, 
because of their love for black people. And so many times people get tripped up by this idea that intersectionality or feminism is only ever about women and girls. Black women, since the suffrage movement, have always been fighting on our behalf. Um, when they were trying to vote, they were making sure that we could, too, that men could vote as well. Right. And, and black um, LGBT folk. So I say that to say, like, there are works out here to the extent that the publishing industry, um, the larger sort of popular culture and media industry put those works at the center. Our schools is another thing, right? But, um, but this book fits a long line of that work. And though what I will say, um, what I'm interested in now, we, when we talk about black men and masculinity first, it's only ever ta- imagined as the domain of, of that's what straight, straight men talk about. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, and, and I, gender as an idea is not about one's sexual identity. You know, manhood and masculinity, these things that we're socialized to perform, that has nothing to do with anyone's um, sexual identity or attractions, right? Um, and it's, it's, we have to break that mold. Like, black manhood as a category includes folk who identify as straight, right. folk who identify as queer or gay or bi, um, is not just cisgender men, meaning men who are not transgender, right? Um, and part of what I've been doing, work I've been doing over the last several years, is to have these conversations in more nuanced ways. Um, when we talk about manhood now, we got to talk about it from a variety of different perspectives. And at the core, what you find is while people may identify differently, live differently, express themselves differently, so many of the same issues are at the center. White racial supremacy and its colonial impulses, its, its colonial legacies, shape all of our works in life, regardless of who you're sleeping with, regardless <laughs> of who you're attracted to. Right, Which right. means we all got the same fight, you know. We all got um, the same fight. Yeah, and, and I tell people all the time, just because somebody is queer or LGBT don't mean that they can be, that they're not sexist, that they don't have to deal with, the, their, with patriarchy, that right. they don't have to deal with their misogyny. That's all of our work. Um, and this book, then, is my way of saying, when one, one, when we talk about blackness, it should not only be centered around the black male experience. So much of the characters in the book that I lift up are black women and girls. Right, I see um, that. Two, that, um, you know, to think about sort of overcoming racism or white racial supremacy is not a single variable issue. We face a multivariable complex issue that bell hooks call white supremacist capitalist patriarchy we can add on to that now right um, and you can't solve a multivariable issue with a single variable problem you can't be in a black lives matter march with a black lives matter t-shirt on talking about you not standing for against sexism then you in the you in the wrong work you're in the wrong work and it's so um, interesting that you yeah. say that yes no i'm sorry is that i get into the, sometimes in these trainings and i tell people that when we talk about bias i'm talking about you just because just because you ain't white doesn't mean that i'm not talking to you we still yeah. have our own stuff and our own communities that we have to deal with to make sure that we are uplifting and fighting together, brother. That's all. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. No, um, you, brother, you're just you're killing it today. I mean, and I appreciate the thought process. One thing that stood out to me, you know, and, and you said this a couple of times, is that surviving at the edges of the margins, right? What are you trying to illuminate when you say that? Surviving at the edges of the margins. Yeah, because even now, I think when we, within context of, of, let's say, something, let me give an example of police misconduct. Um, as soon as that comes up within the context of, say, Movement for Black Lives and BLM, we're instantly thinking about how cops are out in the streets shooting 
black boys and men to death, which they are. So that that's imagined as like a marginal issue. That's like we imagine that black men in this case are overwhelmingly um, assailed by police, and therefore, like that's where all of our focus is to be um, directed. And I I say yes, we ought to focus on those things. But what I mean by edges of the margin is to think about those who are impacted by the same forces who often aren't centered in a narrative. So what people don't know, for example, is that the second leading cause of police misconduct that's reported is actually sexual misconduct. (laughs) Right? So another what I'm trying to get at, and who do you think is probably most likely to be sexually assaulted in police care, right? Women and girls and and men, too. Right. Um, That is to say, oh, the problem is much more complex. And not only that, but women and girls are also killed in police custody. Um, when we think about the the state of, of police relations in our communities, it don't just stop at the bullets that are entering people's bodies. It's the bullets that are ideologies. So that when police are in our hoods, in our neighborhoods, um, you know, surveilling people, trans women, except for example, trans women and, and girls and, and trans folk, gender nonconforming folk in New York City, are overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly stopped and and, and surveilled. Um, and sometimes frisked, and sometimes misgendered, and then if they're arrested, placed in prisons that don't align with the way that they're gendered. Like, my point is, we got to move beyond the normal or what we understand to be the central narrative and really figure out, wait, among us, who really got the most feet on their neck? Right. <laughs> right. And we talked at length uh, a couple months ago about... We talked at length a couple months ago about how black men were actually the white men or the uh, atrocitors to white women. And it was really in having that thought conversation because a lot of the narrative has been just around cisgender, straight black men and the, the stuff that we have been going through. Right. Uh, brother, hold on, because this conversation is so riveting. You know, I want my folks to hear a little bit more about you know where you're moving forward with the book sure you've been listening to the what's your revolution show with dr charles corporal broadcast on wbok 12:30 a.m and also on whiv 102.3 stay with us man with donnell moore author of no ashes in the fire we'll see you on the other side Welcome back to the What's a Revolution show with Dr. Charles Corpru. As I talk with acclaimed author Donnell Moore and his book, No Ashes in the Fire. Brother Moore, I appreciate you staying with me. Oh, no, I'm glad to be here, bro. Thank you, thank you. So in my excitement, uh, I realized that uh, my listeners may not have an understanding of why the book is called No Ashes in the Fire. Could you tell us what, why, why is that? Why did you name it No Ashes in the Fire? Yeah, for two reasons. One, it's a literal, um, a literal recall of an incident that occurred when I was 14 in Camden, and I was in this particular incident. I was I was picked on a lot for because of how I moved around through the world, <laughs> quirky, um, hung up with the girls. So I got picked on a lot, and kids kids call me sissy and gay and all those things. Um, but this one particular time, uh, some neighborhood boys surrounded me. They started hitting me, and one of them took a gallon of gasoline and emptied it on me and tried to let it match. 
Um, but it fortunately did not light the wind, kept taking the, the flame out. Um, so it it was my way of of highlighting that moment where, um, you know, there was there were no ashes because there was no body to be laid. Okay. Right. Um, but it was also my way of thinking about black life in America, um, black people. If and if we're here, we know one thing for sure: America has always been the fire that's tried to consume us. Mm. Um, but we survive. Some of us, don't we? Um, not all of us do. Um, but we survived. So it was my way of, of, of referencing that moment in my life, but also a grander, um, sort of a, a, a more broader way of talking about black people's ability not just to bounce back and be resilient, because that, that's, you know, not really critique of the systems that force us to bounce back, but our, our the medical ability, uh, the, what it means to survive and be black in America in spite of everything that tries to take us out of here. Right, right. The fire and the fire is raging right now in our all the time in and our we, country. Yet we exist. And yet we, we exist. Right, and we resist every day. And yep. that's our revolution. And the revolution began a long time ago, and it has been heightened since November of 2016. And we fight continually every day, even though policies and practices and programs are put up in front of us. We you know, we continue to try to break them down. What's the revolution for black queer folks, man? And then, for that matter, queer folks in general? What yeah, I think for us, um, for black queer folks, to be who we are in a world that tells us we aren't supposed to not just be who we are, but to be. Um, and I mean that, you know, when you're when, when you grow up under conditions where people are telling you all the time that to be who you are is to go to hell, they're telling you that you don't need, you're not supposed to exist, um, and so many so many people, including myself, took that literally. Um, so much of my life was spent trying not to be here. Um, so if uh, to be alive, um, to to be alive, and I don't mean that as hyperbole, um, and to be able to fashion a life that is in tune with how one understands and senses a sense of self in spite of all the messages that tells tells one otherwise, is to be a radically revolutionary yes, person in one's own right. Um, so queerness is less about one's sexual identity. It's about the power to take the large eraser and erase all of the ideological boundaries that will constrict somebody's well-being, that will constrict um, and restrict one's personhood. It's breaking out of that and saying, I'm going to be who I am. Right. I will exist as I know I am to exist. I will love as I choose to love and use my body as I choose to use my body and have sex as I choose to have sex and own my personhood. And that is revolutionary to me. <laughs> it is. It is. And th it is so revolutionary. And as you were talking, I think about my own privilege. Mm. I think about being able to do all of those things and without question. And that... At no point should should anyone who is not like be like not like me be considered less than ordinary. And I talk about this all the time on the show, and it was illuminated by my good friend Jarvis DeBerry. I said this all the time that we all are ordinary people. We we contend to make people extraordinary for no reason, right? right? And all of the things you said are just living, yep. just the ability to live, and those rights and privileges should never be taken away. And right. 
you know, just to be able to love, to be able to do, to be able to act and feel and present. Mm-hmm. And I think that is that is the illumination of what you're saying, the ability to present to the world, this is who I am without any ramifications, without any consequences to stand up and be whoever the – I can't – can I say that? I can't say that. Who I want to be, <laughs> you know. You know, and, and I, I say all the time, you know, you know, I don't use the term coming out because I say, one, straight people don't have to come out of anything. Right. You, we exist in a world where you are born into a world, and, and heterosexuality is a compulsory identity through which we read and understand. All the books we read is about straight love. Right. Uh, and mostly if it's white straight love. All the, the TV shows, what we're taught is all an orientation towards pushing people to be to be heterosexual or to assume they are before you even get anything an opportunity else. to say anything else. So there is no coming out of that, right? Like that one must come into that. I use inviting in, and I say that because to name oneself as queer um, is a radical act for the person, right? Not necessarily for the majority group that seeks, um, that that demands of you to name yourself as abnormal or different for the sake of their comfort. When somebody knocks at your door, at your house, this is a metaphor for one's life, you don't typically open the door and walk out of it. You don't come out your house. You you see who it is at your door. <laughs> you see if you feel safe letting them in, and if you do, you invite them in as an act of hospitality into your space, into your house, into your life. So for queer and trans folk, I say we invite you in. It's mm-hmm. a gift of an act of hospitality to invite you into our space if we feel safe enough to. But more importantly, me naming myself has nothing to do with anybody else. It has to do with self-recognition. Right. It is not me about making anybody comfortable, um, trying to assuage anybody's fears or anyone's discomforts, which really, you know, when I think about the young brother that tried to light me on fire, as an adult, I realized he probably was trying to light something on fire. He's trying to light on fire the parts of himself that he hated, right. the things that he saw. In, right, his fears. You know? um, but, yeah. I love that. No, I love that. And, and I hopefully you will allow me to, as I go out in the world and, and, and do the equity and diversity and inclusion work that I use, to talk about inviting in. Of course. We, we talk so much. Uh, and I have a good friend. He won't even use the term straight in any sentence, right? Of course. Yeah, a, at all. You know, yeah. he, he will find some deri- derivation of the word. He won't. He's like, because that has been the constraint. That has been the, the symbol of, you know, of negativity and barriers to my life to be, you know, to be labeled as straight. And it's so interesting. And I love that inviting in because that's what it is. It is inviting in because I trust and I trust you that you can be a part of my life and not accept, but be a part of this life and understand that this is this is my life and 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 love. Because at the end of the day, Donnell, it's it is about loving. Yeah. And being immersed and feeling love. We all want to wake up each day and feel loved. Um, and so I asked this question to you, knowing that, inviting in. What is the role and responsibility of allies and accomplices in yeah. this revolution? You know, I, I say uh, in, inviting in isn't just I, – I, I love that term because it also expands who the actors are. That active invitation is not just one that is um, to be used by the, the queer or trans person. You know, I, I give an example. When my mom sat me down, well, I said, asked her to come and sit and talk to me when I was 28. 
Um, and she came to my office, and we had to sort of requisite, you know, what's wrong? And I'm looking down at the floor, and she's like, are you sick? And I'm like, no. And she's like, are you get cancer? And I'm like, no. And she's like, is it AIDS? And I say, no. I said, I have a boyfriend. And she said, oh, I know that already. You're my son. <laughs> <laughs> And she was like, I love, you know, I was like, you don't have me send a pill about to die of anxiety. And you knew this, you know. Um, and we talked and we laughed and we, we, you know, shed tears. And she told me how much she loved me. And she told me that, um, I, you know, she said, you are my son and I love you. And no one deserves to be in your life if they can't love you in that way. Um, but she said, she also said, I knew this all along. I just didn't know what to say to you. I didn't want to hurt your feelings. Right. Blah, blah, blah. But I, what I mean there is like, it, she also had an opportunity to, to breach the gap that existed between us much earlier than 28 years, right? So what I say is that there is a compassionate, empathic way in which even allies, accomplices can engage with queer and trans folks that will actually alleviate so much of the stress and fear and anxiety that can cause pain in the life of the queer and trans person. I spent so much of my life trying to kill myself specifically because I feared what would happen if I went and was rejected. Right. Now, what would have happened if my mom at 14 would have said, you know, I don't know how to say this. I don't even know if you have the, the, the awareness of it. Um, I just want you to know that, like, I love you. Regardless yeah. of who you love, who you're attracted to, who you like, you may not even know. And, and you may be figuring this out. I know you get picked on because i got to come to your rescue sometimes. But I want you to be good in your skin, and I want you to look in the mirror and love yourself. Like, do you see what do you see what could have happened? Yes. Like, I would have spent yes. half of a young adult life trying. Like, I would not have been taking pills. I would not have been, um, figure, you know, sitting in the back of a car thinking about jumping into traffic. I may have not made the bad decisions I did sexually. Um, and by bad, I don't mean moralistic here. I'm talking about like. I, I would have had, when you have people to talk to as a young person, and when, you know, most queer and trans young people don't have people they can talk to, you make a lot of decisions on your own. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. In the dark. Right. Um, so I say be okay with, one, taking that leap, um, but take it with empathic regard. And, and, and also don't try to be the expert of, of, of other people's experiences right. and at the same time gain some knowledge yes there's so much out right now watch pose fx go read a book by james earl hardy or pick up my book or michael arsenu's book i can't date jesus or pick up any like go to google <laughs> figure out what lgbt means right like what that tell the story means. brother yes exactly yeah. Exactly. No, I, I, as as you're saying all of these things, I'm, I'm glad that you gave a, a, a litany of of ideas and opportunities for us to be able to go out and make sure that we can be a true ally and a compass. Because there is a difference between ally, and I had to learn that. I had to I had to sit in space one day with one of my good friends. He said, "You know what? It's great that you're an ally, right? And I love that. But I need there. Are sometimes I need you to be an accomplice." There's sometimes I need you to jump into this fight and stand beside me and fight or jump in front of me and fight, mm -hmm. right? Yep. I need you be to be willing to lose some, be willing to lose some stuff. That's it, how I defend it. Exactly, exactly. I need you to be willing to exactly. I need you to be willing to lose some of your street cred, right, yeah. to stand up for me. And and that particularly as as black men, we may not be willing to lose, right? And and that's the internal work that we actually have to do. You've been listening to the What's a Revolution show with Dr. Charles Corpru. 
talking to acclaimed author of No Ashes in the Fire, Darnell Moore, as we talk about his book, The Meaning of No Ashes in the Fire, how we can be accomplices and allies in the movement for queer and trans folk. Let me ask you this question, Darnell. You know, as, as we talk about finding and embracing the healthiest version of ourselves, what's your take? How, what's your prescription for us as we find or at least attempt to move forward to be healthier as men? One of the things I think is it's most important, self-reflexive analysis or self-reflection, um, being able to really not lie <laughs> um, <laughs> about the uh, so one I want to say I want us as black men to be able to look in the mirror and see a reflection that we can love and sometimes in doing that we got to confront the monsters within ourselves right um, and then once we confront those monsters do all we can to to ensure that we're not acting out in those monstrous ways but I've been on this path of, of self-reflective analysis I call it um, turning the mirror and so that I can see inward, um, figuring out how I am, I can be one oppressed and the oppressor at the same time. Mm, tell the story, um, brother. And I want to be sure that you know. And I say, somehow, people who for whom have been hit by the system so long um, know something about t- turning that them same energies back on other people. Um, and I want us to undo that. Um, one, I love us. I love black people. Uh, and part of that love is being willing to tell the truth. Like you, you know, Baldwin says the reason why he's able to critique America is because he loves it. And I always say if you love a thing, you won't lie about it. So when you love something, you tell it the truth. And we got work to do on that. We got work to do. When you love something, you tell it the truth. that's a loving truth right there. That is a loving truth, brother. And that work, when we do it, can only make us better, not only for for other people but for ourselves, you know. Um, And when we are better with ourselves, I'm I'm so interested in in black men and love and intimacy because I always say we come come up under conditions of lovelessness. Um, so it makes sense to me why we don't know how to give the thing that has been denied us or ask for the thing that we've been told we can't have, right? Um, what then does it mean to, to get to the point where we can ask for that? We got work to do. We got work to do. I always talk about, dear brother, about being poured into. And oftentimes we will pour into other things when we're asking to be poured into. We need love, right? And being poured into, I, I have this image of my mind of, of, of what it feels like to be full. And, you know, because you kind of have this mental gauge, you know, it's, it's kind of like your gas gauge. And, and you know, what it's like to be full. And, mm-hmm. and, but also what it's like to be empty. Yeah. And, and what you do when you're empty and the things that you will try to do to pour into you may be harmful, right? Mm-hmm. May be totally harmful to someone else. Because it's the wrong way. And you yep. said that so much that, uh, about lying, lying to ourselves. Yeah. And, 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 and that comes back to, as you said, if you love something, you tell it the truth. Mm-hmm. So if you're loving yourself, you're telling yourself the truth. If you love someone else, you're telling them the truth. But why has it, has it been so hard for us as men to do that, to tell truth to ourselves and then tell truth to the people that we love? Why is it so hard for us? Well, it's hard to look in the mirror and see something staring back that you may not like to see. 
Um, and also, I think men are, we, well, we, it's one, I think it's for many of us really impossible to see errors when we think that those errors are correct, are really impossible mm. to see lies when we're taught to be the truth. Right. Like patriarchy and sexism and misogyny is the rule of the day. That's what we've been socialized to believe. One, therefore, can't look and try to discern when wrong, when you think that that's the way you catcalling and touching women or anybody, really, um, without permission, um, that, the, that another's body is your own, um, you know, that power, the way that we show power is through our physical prowess, never our emotions, that we're not supposed to cry, right? Like so many of these things, we've been taught to believe that. And that isn't just a problem for black boys and men. That's, a, that's an American right problem exactly what global problem really patriarchy is a global issue that that has its sort of hands in a lot of different things and while some people are praised for toxic masculinity hence trump and voted in office because of it other of us are deadened by it in fact patriarchy should not just be ended because it harms women and girls it harms all of us right. it humanizes men it keeps us from being fully human fully ourselves all that to say it's hard because we don't know that what we have believed are lies. <laughs> <laughs> Say it again, brother. <laughs> we don't. You understand? What I'm yeah. We think that the cage is like a route to freedom. <laughs> That's you're right, and, and and we think that our sometimes we think that our lies are are, are the truth. Yeah. The, so we you, gotta we gotta exp That's the work. The work then is like exposing and sort of pulling the veneer off the iron saying and exposing the cage for what it is. And exposing the lie for what it is, that's education, though, like communal education, work that we do, not just in the, in the classical sense or the, the way we – I'm talking about, like, the shit we do – sorry for cussing, but they we do in a barbershop, right? Um, the ways we engage in a barbershop, how might we use a barbershop as a space to right. Like, right. do some of this work? Our, our living rooms, our, like, Sunday football time, so like – well, well, that, that's another conversation about football. But, um, you know, I think about Wisdom Powell's work uh, and who has been done amazing work around the power of barbershops and the narrative that black men have in barbershops and how it is for us the last bastion. It is our country club. And sadly to say, I lost that ability to go to the barbershop uh, about 15 years ago when I went bald. But it still is a, a tremendous place for us to have opportunities. And there's a lot of communities of color that are now using the barbershop as places of healing uh, to promote mental health and well-being. And there's a brother in Milwaukee who's actually got a model around how to use, you know, how to train barbers to actually do mental health and well-being work. And so a, a wonderful space. You talk about cages, and, and that was something that was illuminated a couple of times. Um, and and maybe it's because I was listening to a lot of the work that you have been doing, a lot of the interviews. But you talk about how cages and how they can't transform hearts and minds, right? What does that mean? Because I mean, it means I mean that literally. So I mean, you probably sent a sort of uh, prison abolition or a critique of um, of our prison system um, in that, and I mean that literally. I you know from someone who has family members and friends and, and lives in communities where the way that we dealt with problems is to send people to jail and prison right. as a form of rehabilitation. That had they really been rehabilitated, they would not have been going back a hundred million times, which was not because of their own fault, but because of policies and laws and racial pro and look, we know it's systemic issues. My, inevitably, I don't believe, and, and 
not only don't believe, but nothing has proven to show me anything different. Right. Um, that that places of incarceration are rehabilitative. Just, just, I, I don't know. I've not seen any signs. Of right. That. No, and I, um, I, I would definitely you know agree I mean? with that. Yes. So w- part of what I'm not saying then is that um, we don't need mechanisms for safety in our community. I just don't think that's the one. We have to reimagine what those um, spaces might look like. I think people need mental health interventions. I think people need um, jobs. Um, I think people need um, c- uh, sort of non-Western forms of, of community healing um, and practices. Um, I don't necessarily believe that people need to be placed in a jail cell, right? Now, I also mean that metaphorically, um, and in so many ways, if we're talking about abolishing the sort of monsters that aren't really working for us right now, and by monsters I mean the systems like jails and prisons that are full of black and brown bodies, um, I also want to believe that we can abolish some of the other cages, the, the ideological ones. That That's what I want to hear, exactly. Our commitments to sort of this idea that any relationship that isn't heterosexually oriented mm-hmm. is wrong, um, this idea that masculinity and manhood is all about quote unquote real men walking around not showing their feelings, um, you, you know, the top, <laughs> the, the aggressor, um, all of those ideas, gender even, this, this, our sort of commitment and just deep, deep, deep desire to fit into this box named manhood or womanhood. Right, seems exactly. Somehow determined to, to define us, those things are really cages. They weren't created for our well-being. And by we, I mean black people. Right. Right? Yeah. Like these, and, and so I want us to also think about what it means to, to, my, to abolish them and think of some new ways of being. Right. Dear brother, this conversation has been, you know, how do I say, breathtaking, amazing, informative, transformative, just revolutionary. And the alignment, brother, as I sit and listen to you, and it'll it will be one of the shows that I will go back time and time again to listen to, to think through how do I even get better uh, as a man and how do I make sure that I am an accomplice, uh, a better accomplice in the work that we're doing. Um, how, how do people, you know, the book is out there, No Ashes in the Fire, make sure everybody goes out and, and buys the book, but how do people see you, hear you, hear more of yeah. you? Um, you can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, um, all under, it's at more Darnell. Gotcha. Gotcha, brother. Thank we thank you. you for your time and greatness for your success, brother. Blessings thank to you. you and everything that you're doing. And thank you for being the revolutionary that we need in this conversation, brother. I appreciate you. Have a great day. You too. You've been listening to the What's Your Revolution show with Dr. Charles Cooper. I want to thank my guest, Darnell Moore, author of No Ashes in the Fire. We look forward to seeing you and hearing from you all this week. And our guest next week will be another author who talks about the eight ways of finding the healthiest versions of yourself. Thank you for spending time with me. Have a great week and always be able to answer the most thought-provoking question of your life. What's your revolution, everyone? Take care. Go!